What difference can one person make in a global pandemic? What COVID-19 gave me the opportunity to do was to live out my beliefs. And could a man ever have a better blessing in life to know that he got to live out his belief, which is, hey, we're going to try to love our neighbors. We're living in uncertain times, surrounded by chaos, fear, even outrage. But a new world is emerging, putting forth beams of hope, healing, community, and recovery. Welcome to Luminaries in the Dark, hopeful stories about people pivoting their life and their work to rise above chaos and help those in need. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken. When you think of a furniture manufacturer, you'd be safe to assume the most important aspect of that business is making furniture. But as it turns out, that may not always be the case. We're joined today by Jeff Koss, owner and president of Koss Tailored Furniture Manufacturing, who will talk to us about what he views is most important at his company, how his personal and business principles and philosophies prepared him for the pandemic and enabled him to quickly pivot from producing furniture to producing face masks, and his continued commitment to growing people above growing business. Well, hey, Jeff, welcome to Luminaries in the Dark. It's great to have you on the show and really appreciate you taking the time out of your uh, busy schedule to uh, join us today to chat. You are the president and owner of a local furniture manufacturing business here in Muckleteal, Washington, called Koss Furniture Manufacturing. Now, this, as I understand it, is a kind of a long family business. Did you ever think when you were young that you would be following in your dad's footsteps and take over the family business? You know, that's a great question. I actually did, which is kind of weird, but my dad really taught me uh, very early, hey, putting your name on something is is something special. And when you put your name on it, it has to represent you for the life of that product. So I was really attracted to being able to be part of something where we could live out our values. I wouldn't have said it that way as a young person, but going to the university, 100% of my education was based in what does the company uh, need? And if I could get hired, because my dad was a little bit rough on the idea of me being hired there, what would I have to offer? So yeah, it was. I wouldn't say it was a dream, but it was certainly a desire. And so tell us how you got started. Tell us a bit about yourself, because if I remember correctly, you actually didn't take over the business until somewhere around the age of 30. So tell us a bit about kind of how you grew up and your progression into taking on the family business? Yeah, I worked as a teenage kid, probably illegally. Uh, I started <laughs> when I was uh, 15 and just working as a cleanup boy, which was a great job because when you clean a toilet, you know, you got it clean. Great feedback right away. Worked all the way through college. In fact, I didn't spend a single weekend at the UW. I spent every weekend making things to pay for my portion of college. Graduated and somehow there was an opening at the company. And uh, on day one, my dad walked in with a stack of papers and said, hey, uh, this aerospace thing might be another business for us. But at that time, we were just furniture only. If you can figure that out, you can keep this job. I'll give you about six months to figure it out. That day, almost like it was pennies from heaven above, I found, I think it was like $35,000 of invoicing that he had failed to invoice. So I walked in at the end of the day and I said, hey, dad, I think there's $35,000 here. And uh, he told me later, hey, that was the moment I knew that you would be okay here because you started with the easy thing. You researched it and understood it. The business at that time had about 13 or 14 people. And we grew through several, if you think of business cycles, as uh, you kind of want to grow when the tide is rising. And so every time the, the tide rose in the economy, we kind of built a bigger part of the business. So uh, when it came time for my dad to retire, 
we didn't know he would ever retire, but he walked into a management meeting and he said, uh, so, you know, I had a dream of uh, retiring when I'm 60 and having a million dollars. So, hey, I'm turning 60 soon and I have a million dollars already. So you have two years notice. And he came back about a month later and said, you know what? I thought I was 58, but I'm actually 59. I didn't know it. So I'm still retiring when I'm 60. And he just basically walked out then. So he wrote up the business arrangement to transition ownership. And when he wrote it up, he wrote it basically, hey, Jeff, you're going to own this business. And I took one look at it and said, you know, my marriage is the most important thing for myself, but also for my kids, future kids at that time, and the business. If you don't give the business to my wife and I, to our marriage, in effect, I can't accept this. This isn't something I can do. So it almost didn't happen because his lawyers were smart and said, that's a stupid idea. (laughs) So when I was 30 years old, that's when I took over responsibility for it. And from that moment forward, basically, my dad became a great advisor. You know, I can call him on the darkest days, like today, I might call him and say, hey, we had a fire in the wood shop. Did you ever have that happen? So yeah, he's become an advisor. And so then the rest of my journey has really just been about me learning that the business itself, the work is not really the main thing. The main thing is the people that you serve and the lives that you impact. And so, you know, I have a a Christian worldview and I'm a factory guy, which is a little bit at odds because we weren't had to cuss very young when we were in the factory. (laughs) So this really became a ministry of sorts, which is, hey, these people are here and my job is to make sure that they're next generation, whether it's at my company or some other place, is much brighter because they spent some time in my business. And that's kind of where we're at today is that we're really trying to look at generational wealth, uh, not financial per se, but how do we make sure the next generation of people in our community are positively impacted by the existence of a furniture maker in Mukilteo? It sounds like you have a really strong, not just a work ethic, but a unique and almost philosophical approach to your business, but also the people that work with you at the company. Did you pick that up from your father? Is that something that you kind of picked up on your own through studies or just experience? For many years, I ran this business as if it was Larry Costas, my dad's, to bring honor to him. And about 10 years ago, I'm like, I called him and said, Dad, you know, I've been running this for your glory, but technically, I believe that God kind of is a real thing. And I need to actually bring him glory, and then you'll be the byproduct. And we had a good laugh. So really, I would say that the part of me that was formed early by my father was the values you you might associate with a Judeo-Christian mindset, which is your yes equals yes. If you make a promise, you keep it. And for sure, hard work. I would say that all came from him, and he built a very strong foundation. So there at Cost Manufacturing, I know that you make furniture, and you mentioned a moment ago the addition of an aerospace arm. And gosh, with your very strong philosophies on business, I would think you you might uh, benefit from offering some sort of consulting arm as well. Yeah, So and, and we do. So aerospace is, what we love about aerospace is it's extremely regulated. You're dealing with really big companies who give you incredible learning opportunities. And sometimes those are painful learning opportunities, and some of them are just, you know, glorious. So we love aerospace because it's extremely rigid, much like healthcare is. And that's a, a new business that we started because of the COVID deal to make PPE. And then furniture is all creative. So we bring in really its art with a bit of science. Through the survival of all this stuff, we adopted many of the principles that Toyota codified in what is called lean manufacturing or Kaizen. And we just applied it basically to survive. And uh, what we found was these are principles that actually apply everywhere. And so the consulting part of our business really started by us just training people from around the world. We used to do free tours, 40 weeks a year, 
for four hours a day. And I was the only tour guide three days a week. So we think that we had over 40,000 people come through on free tours. And the whole idea was, hey, we, we know something, we think it's true, poke holes in it. But if it is true, maybe you want to adopt some of this. Because on the other side of work of this is if you implement these, you get always higher quality, always lower costs, always shorter lead time, way more delight for the customers, and importantly, more joy for the worker, more learning opportunity, more innovation. So it, it sounded so good to be true that we, we went to Toyota, I think, six trips to Japan to study. And at some point, we're like, it might be true. And then through these tours, we just had people from all over the world come in. And at some point, we're like, oh, gosh, we know it's true. It's always true. These seven wastes are horrible. And we should tell the world. So the consulting part really started as just a gift, kind of a love your neighbor, give it back. And then at some point, we realized, you know, the most valuable thing we have to offer in the world has nothing to do with the furniture that we make or the airplane parts or the space parts that we make. The most valuable thing we have in the world is, is that, that work can be good. It could feel like hobby. And when you do that, everybody wins. And there's a generation of people my age who don't know that. There's a lot of pain in, in work, a lot of burden that is completely unnecessary. It's an own goal. And it's almost always the responsibility of a leader in the corner office who either doesn't know they're you know, doing something awful or they know and they don't care. And so we now are actively out trying to help those organizations that may want to implement this stuff. That sounds great. And so your three main pillars, furniture, aerospace, and consulting, that almost sounds like three legs of a stool or three uh, strands of a cord. So part of the strategy of the three businesses is, is based on a proverb that our three-stranded cord is very difficult to break. It is the idea that there's wisdom in having a business that has balance. From a strategic perspective, they feed each other. So the consulting means that we'll have people in our building who should assume that we're hypocrites. So when they come in, they're auditing us. And if they find out that we're not hypocrites, then they start asking really interesting questions. So, But the, the outside influence of all these tour guests means that we're constantly needing to improve so that we aren't hypocrites. And then, of course, the creative spirit we get from the furniture and the design side helps us with designing things for aerospace product and then the discipline you get in aerospace. So once we figured out that these are all kind of the same, we're serving very particular customers who have a need for really, really high mix, low volume items. And until COVID, there was never a time in my career where all three of those markets were dead at the same time. I can't say that anymore. You know, we really desire to be growing people. So if we're just a furniture company, we're very limited in achieving our desire, which is just shine light to our community. So having three businesses really provides those who enter our organization an ability to write their own ticket. Do you want to learn way more about creative stuff, furniture, or discipline stuff? We put stuff in spacecraft, so our stuff has been in space. Or do you want to go you know, spend time in hospitals and actually help people save lives? Being part of costs means you can be in all three of those. So we can actually say that a three-quarter strand is so true. So this is, I think, the fun part of reading the Bible and going, well, if that's true, then it should apply here. And then to find out later that it applies in 10,000 more ways than you ever thought. Um, that's kind of kind of really how we tested lean manufacturing is if it's true, let's just test it. And I think that's why my faith is so like so solid. It's like I te- every time I test it, it comes back positive. So it'd be really stupid for me to fight it. Let's talk about the test because all of us kind of are enduring a new test that has been thrust upon us, COVID-19. And the proverb of the three-stranded cord, how does that hold up amidst 
COVID-19. How did that affect you personally, but how did that affect your, your company, the people that you work and collaborate with, the people that you are helping to grow? And then did that knock any legs out from under the stool? Did that uh, actually break the three-stranded cord? What were your perceptions uh, once COVID-19 hit us? Yeah, this is super interesting. So uh, there's a, a few questions. We say, hey, what is COVID-19 or what is this, this season of life given to us? So, and I'm glad that we're talking about growing people because I don't think it's my call in life, my responsibility to grow only people who happen to work for my company because of my consulting world or because of all the uh, areas in the world that we've actually just contributed through the idea of loving your neighbor any human being in the world that knows my name knows that they could probably call me and say, Jeff, hey, I'm struggling with something. Will you help me think through it? So what COVID-19 really did is it really sharpened our focus on, do we really believe that we're here to shine light to our community? And if so, what does that look like? And to us, what that looked like is, hey, when we hear that the world needs PPE, then we're calling them and texting them saying, look, we can do that for you. We'll get started right now. We'll figure out money later if we have to. Right now, let's just solve the problem. So you, you kind of say, okay, what COVID-19 got, gave me the opportunity to do is to live out my beliefs. And what a blessing it is to get a call from a hospital that says our nurses and our doctors, they're taking risks that are just not okay. And to see pictures of my friends, my, the people that have trained with us wearing our stuff, like what a blessing. Could a man ever have a better blessing in life to know that he got to live out his belief, which is, hey, we're going to try to love our neighbors. And then have pictures of people who are doctors taking care of people we care about from our church in our stuff. So, so I'd say that the, the, the one thing it did is it just, it really codified or made it so much more important. If we're going to shine light to our community, hey, when the light points our way, we're going to run like crazy and we're going to do our part. But at a business level, all three legs of our stool are in trouble. So nobody needs an airplane for a while. The furniture that we make, we used to make all the furniture for Nordstrom stores. They're not going to be needing new furniture in the stores when they're cutting back on stores. Basically, all three of our legs were chopped in half. However, thankfully, for all the things that we have in life, since we know that uh, there are good seasons and bad seasons, feast and famine, we have a, a very large rainy day account. And so we're still trucking along with the help from the government, with the PPP. There's been a bunch of blessings that have come with it. So I wouldn't say that our stools, the three legs are, are broken. They're just shorter which means that we may have to scale back our business. But if we look globally with the idea that, hey, we're just going to keep being us. We're going to advocate for business. We're going to advocate for leaders to do their job and remove burden from their teams and to create value and create wealth. And we'll still keep advocating when given the opportunity for that wealth doesn't need to go only to shareholder. You know, it's for the, the men and women who make it. It's for that next generation of kids who get educated and move on to something next. So in some ways, we've been given the opportunity to meet you, for example, and Mona, which we have never been given the opportunity to do before because my life story so far has been hide from everybody, try to be a good husband, which I kind of suck at. I'm a little bit better as a dad and better as a grandpa. And then the business thing was like fifth in life. So I wouldn't have a chance to meet you if it weren't for this thing going on. Yeah, absolutely. And so when COVID did first kind of hit us, I, I mean, I feel like the level of impact that people felt kind of blindsided many folks. I just don't think so many people thought it was going to be this impactful on their lives. They probably thought it'd be more like a flu level, you know, just get rid of it. It'd be gone. Did you see this coming? Did it blindside you as well? And then for you and your company, once this really impacted your lives, what did that day after look like? 
Um, it blindsided my team. It didn't blindside me. The reason for that is part of my annual routine. So we divide our work in a measure of time. So the today work is really customer ordered something. We can make something for them today. And the tomorrow work is project work, which might be, hey, there's a capability that we uh, have already decided that we want to have. And the tomorrow work is always about, hey, there's a capability or a new thing. It's a project uh, that we want to have this uh, thing going in the future. So there's a team of people, my, let's say my middle management, if you would call it such a thing. Um, they do the tomorrow work. My job is actually in the day after tomorrow. So my entire job is really, other than spending time with people and you know, trying to understand what's going on in the world, is to predict what might happen in the future and is there anything that we should be doing to prepare for it. So pandemic has been in my forecast every year because you have to have that into your forecast if you are paying attention to how the world works. And I always in the, the forecast to team to say, hey, so if this does happen, I bought, there's a thousand of the N95 masks. I bought those 10, 15 years ago. And so we, we can at least send our folks home with some for themselves and some of their family. And they'd always roll their eyes at me like, you're like crazy. What's going on? So I would just say that when I start seeing the news happening, I always, I'm looking for that in my forecast and I know where to look in the world for the logical places where this might occur. And so it was, it was actually, there was nothing at all that surprised me, even to the point of us being closed down. It's not because I'm smart. It's just that you can't read the Bible or you can't look at history and think that you're 53 years old and you're not going to have a pandemic in your life. I just, it's just not going to happen. So anyway, so it didn't blindside us. And so what that allowed me to do was to coach my team while they were in fight or flight. And actually a lot of them went to freeze. So it allowed me to say, hey, everybody, this is just, this is what it's like to be a human being. These kind of things happen. And here's what I think is going to happen next. And one of the things that we knew that we needed to do is we needed to be an essential business. And it was not clear to us. So I'm getting to the day after. Once that became clear, that we have a day after tomorrow board, a tomorrow board, and, and the today board. And the day after tomorrow, we wrote essential business. And then, you know, what products will work for that? And we kind of thought aerospace, uh, because there's some defense stuff in there, we thought that might keep, keep us open. So that was on the board very early. And then when we saw the 100 million mass challenge from Providence, it was just literally, oh, that, that's something we can do. You know, I texted a doctor and she said, oh, yeah, for sure we need your help. And the next day we're making masks. So the day after, like everybody else might have been just in the moment of shock, we were in full production the next day. So we literally were busy until about like the last week of July. And that's when the PPE stuff started dropping off. So we haven't had our day after yet, to be honest. So that's really interesting that you actually had pandemic in your plans for quite a while as something that just might be on the horizon. So let's dive into a little bit more about your pivot. Uh, you mentioned the, the million mask challenge. You mentioned calling a doctor friend or texting and the next day you're making masks. How did all that come about? And what exactly is the pivot? If you think of our factory as a kitchen, so we were making you know cookies and cakes and all of a sudden we needed scones. So the factory thinking is, because of our learning from Toyota is everything's flexible. We never want to tell a customer no because we're too stupid to organize our business for them. So the business is already set up with a mindset that the walls are gone, there's electricity everywhere, everything's on wheels so that we could reset and build whatever we want because frankly, we make something different every day anyhow. So the real pivot was just having somebody who needed something different than the things that we were currently selling. So for most of my career, 
we have not been looking for new clients. Like for almost maybe only two to three percent of my career have we actually been seeking out somebody to buy stuff from us. We're in one of those moments right now because our three legs are kind of shorted that we discussed earlier. So it was a Tuesday, March 18th is the day that I did the text. So it was the day before the 18th. I was actually at the fabric store buying stuff to make masks. And I was working with my prototype team before we knew anything of the 100 million mask challenge. And I'm like, hey, I think the world's going to need this stuff. And I was just having fun, making a few with the team. And they're like, what are you doing this for? I'm like, uh, I just think there might be a thing. And then uh, somebody walked in the next morning uh, and said, hey, do you, did you hear that Providence thinks that they're going to need 100 million masks? Like, so they're putting out a challenge. I'm like, oh, I know Dr. Joe. I'm going to text her. So Dr. Joe Roberts is actually an executive now uh, at corporate. I texted her at 7.30 in the morning, and I got a reply from her within like five minutes. It was like, yeah, Jeff, for sure. Let's talk. At the end of that day, one of their boss types called and said, hey, we heard you might be able to help us. I'm like, well, here's the deal. I am 100% sold out for helping the healthcare system. So if it's not you guys, it'll be somebody else. So if you don't move your butt, I'm on the next guy because I have a lot of friends in healthcare. And he said, no, 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 we'll be there. We'll be there tomorrow. They showed up, I think it was before 7 a.m. They brought two uh, executives. One, her name is Sue. She had sewn a bunch of the, the prototypes there at, at Providence. And then uh, Jen was the kind of the business person. And by the end of that day, so the 19th, we had a prototype approved, digitized, shared in Holland, as in the Netherlands. My factory friend in Holland was making product for me all night so that the next morning I woke up to training videos and production enhancements and ideas. So we were full on production. So if the text message went out on the 18th, we're full production on the 20th. And I think the, the really fun part is we could not make 100 million masks. So we called all of our friends and actually some of our competitors and said, can you please help us make masks? So we hired Nordstrom, the tailors at Nordstrom, and uh, they made a million masks for us. And when I say us, for the effort, um, we had Alaska Airlines flying stuff for free to get raw materials to our suppliers. Uh, we had Boeing flying stuff, uh, raw materials in from China to help us make shields. It was just this, this most crazy effort where the companies who we've served our whole lives became part of our, I want to say suppliers, but they became true partners in that, in that season. Uh, yeah, and then it fell off a cliff. You know, as soon as the Chinese production came on, the uh, demand for that is, you know, kind of dropped off. So as fast as it went up, it went down. That is amazing. And I love the fact that, I mean, first of all, you were able to pivot to such a huge extent and so quickly because the ability to make those pivots was kind of already built into your business model and business philosophy. It's, I mean, if it wasn't the masks, you just had the capacity to transition your factory or transition what your company does and swap products in and out. Is that correct? Yep, exactly. And that's, that's why I say it's so important to know the principles, know the things that govern work, the laws of nature. So there's a bunch of laws of nature that you can debate on how they became laws. But the second law of thermodynamics is a law and things are moving from order to disorder. It's kind of a proven thing. So when you organize your business to cooperate with laws like gravity and the law of thermodynamics. And then you add to that literature. For us, it's the Bible, but for other people, you'd find wisdom in other literature for sure. So the business is really, you should be able to walk through my business and say, well, what does Jeff believe? Oh, he must believe in openness. He must believe in flexibility. He must believe in knowing and showing truth because we believe if people know the truth and they know that we're really serious about being a blessing to them, that when we run, we run together. 
So you're right. It's those, those principles that we founded our business on and we're willing to kill the business over because if it's not a principle, I want to know it. That might be more valuable than owning a business. So yeah, so it really is, is what allowed us to pivot. It, it wasn't really a pivot. It was really us continue to be who we are. We always say the who we do business with is the most important thing. So we didn't change the who. We have been loving on Providence Medical Centers for 20 years, 15 years. We love those people. We never had any money from them, but we've, we've just been loving them. And now they love this back. Actually, we didn't change anything. We just kept being us. So when people say it's a pivot, it really wasn't a pivot. It was we got to live out uh, the belief of who is more important than what, why we're doing something is way more important than how. And uh, so actually nothing changed. Yeah. And that is what is so amazing. So once you began collaborating with uh, Nordstrom's, a company in Holland, I believe you even said some of your competitors came on board and you began working with them as well. What, what was that like? Well, it's crazy fun. I doubt most people would say, hey, COVID-19, crazy fun. They go in the same paragraph. But I cannot tell you how fun it was to call our friends at Nordstrom and say, there's this real thing out there. Would you be willing to help and to have the Nordstrom family support us? Like, what the heck? You just can't write that in a book. You cannot write a story. You just can't make that up, right? That's the, so crazy fun to work with them. And the great thing about those people is the quality of the work they did was what a blessing if you're a doctor or a nurse to receive a mask sewn by Nordstrom or cost tailored. You had to feel pretty good receiving that. So, so that was kind of cool to imagine that I'd be hiring Boeing to do some legwork for us. And there'd be generous people at the other end of the line at Boeing going, we'll help you. Alaska Airlines, come on, they're flying stuff. It's so crazy. And then the you know working with our, our competitors, one I can name is Felfab. They have a factory in the U.S., but they have a factory in Canada as well. And these guys are honorable people. They they jumped in and, and did work. And we had some bad experiences too, where we got people set up and they kind of stole the idea and, and started selling it. And it's okay because we we don't expect perfect people. It's just uh, you know fun opportunities. So there's some messy things. And then globally, our decision was if, if it really is indeed a 100 million mass challenge, then we need to have everybody on the globe have the data. So we shared our data globally right away. So I was getting calls in that same time we were trying to ramp up with competitors, with uh, helping our suppliers or getting help from our suppliers, getting help from our customers, whatever. At that same time, I was getting calls from people all over the planet saying, hey, we've got your data. Can you send us a video of the jig you're using? Or what machine are you using? So I literally was, you know, on the phone and texting and LinkedIning people using our data. So we'll really never know how many people use the data to get started on it. And it wasn't like magical data. It was, here's a mask, here's how to sew it, here's a video. But it was enough to get people rolling. So I would just say it was crazy to be able to go, well, I'm talking to that person on another continent and they're using our data. Somebody in Africa was, I was talking to a guy in Africa, I'm like, how is this even possible? to be talking to somebody in, in Africa who's going to use our data to sew masks for people in that country, or it was, I think, Ghana. I'm like, what the heck? So it was very, very intense. It's not unusual for us to work 12-hour days as, as small business people, but I never worked harder 12-hour days than I did in the spring. Those were, because I was also, a lot of times I was sewing or assembling while I was on the phone helping people, which was, I'm surprised I didn't end up putting my finger through a machine. You know, in our first episode uh, on Luminaries in the Dark, one of our guests, Brenda Jallitz, at home sews masks. And I remember her telling us that she would stand in line at Joann's and Michael's 
for you know hours at a time so that she could go in and, and get some of that the raw materials to sew. Where did you all get your materials? And did you have funding initially, for example? Yeah, so uh, no funding. So this is the power of us having a savings account. So it initially started with, you have a need, I have a balance sheet, I'll use it to help our community. Please be kind to us and pay us later. But literally for the first month or so, it wasn't clear that we'd get paid. But there was a trust factor that we had with the people of Providence, and they were a thousand percent honorable. But it was it was at risk. But the raw materials is interesting. So of course we we ran to Joanne and and Michaels and you know very early you know grabbed some things. But when they gave the challenge, when they showed up, I'm like, okay, is it really 100 million mass? And they're like, no, we think it's much more than that. I'm like, okay, then this idea of having everybody sew things in our homes is lovely and necessary. But in healthcare, we need to have a different plan. So you really need to get people like me who have factories. And there's two industries that I'm involved with that will have nothing to do for a while, furniture and aerospace. So why don't we call our friends? Why don't we get these two industries up and running? So my friends in Holland have a furniture factory making furniture that I make here. So Design on Stock is the, the name of the company that we, we build the furniture in the U.S. for consumers, and they have a factory there. So they took off and you know running like crazy. And the people in aerospace were kind of the same way. So really, the raw materials came from when the hospitals shut down to focus on COVID, the materials they used to wrap the uh, utensils for uh, surgeries, it's called surgical wrap, that became a problem for them, meaning too much inventory of that. So we were able to harvest that and make masks out of it, which great thing is it's already proven, it's already tested, it's, it was widely available. You know, we still have someone in the building right now as a just in case, in case things go crazy again. With the material being there in the building, describe for me what the factory looks like right now, or at least during the period when you began making the masks. Because I, I know that you have your partners around the world helping make the masks, but let's look kind of locally at your factory. How did you convert your factory? And talking about growing people... How did they transition from, say, building furniture to making masks? The transition from, you know, there was a, a, a life of making airplane parts and space parts and furniture and tours and consulting. So a normal day would have been, you would have walked through the factory and seen cool sofas, cool airplane parts, and people from, you know, whatever company in the world on tour asking my colleagues questions. That was the normal cost experience. So the minute we realized this is a problem, we basically ended visitors. And on the 18th, when we got the call, the factory was basically still running the same way. Customers hadn't realized that they would need airplane parts or furniture yet. But on the 19th, you would have seen this emergence of this blue material and this pink material on a few desks and in the design area. Two or three days later, you would have noticed that this pink and blue material was on all the machines, every workstation. And you would have seen that the factory, all the, the sewing stations were spread out in weird ways to make sure we had social distancing in place. And then you would have seen, at least in that first uh, two weeks, a struggle between our need and desire to take 100% of our resources and use them for the PPE and this contractual reality, which was, hey, we make airplane parts and our airplane company customers had not yet adjusted their schedules. So we were basically calling, begging them, hey, can you give us a little bit of grace here? Can we not produce the stuff you need for that airplane? Because honestly, we think you're going to shut down too. And we really need this capacity to make masks. And so it became a basically a sea of, of masks everywhere. 
and our warehouse filled up instead of with furniture being built, it'd be boxes and boxes and boxes. I've never seen so many boxes. We had boxes in the parking lot of this medical grade material. And now what the factory looks like is it's a mixture of both. And we have a lot of shields up to make sure that people can have another layer of protection, but it, it looks not a lot different than walking into, into your Starbucks store and going, okay, you've got some barriers here, but we can still make eye contact and we're still making stuff. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And so what is the wide range of products that you're making? Because I, I know initially you you mentioned uh, sewing masks, but then you you also uh, hinted at uh, gowns and, and face shields. We'd love to be out of the PPE business um, until such time as that is the case. We think that shields are going to become something that people really appreciate using. If you have to wear a mask all day and then try to communicate, um, what we're finding is the nonverbal, you're missing out on so much of the body language when you can't see the face. So, so we're making reusable masks uh, with, you know, like t-shirt material. We're still making a few of the disposable masks for healthcare. We're making shields and then, yeah, some gowns for healthcare facilities, some of them at a very high level. There's also, I think, an interest in governments, hopefully, to rebuild the stockpile that they used. So, you know, there's some maybe some opportunity there to help rebuild the stockpile of those materials. I think our story is we jumped in earlier and faster than everybody else, but now everybody's in. So the big kids are in and, and we'll have a hard time competing with that network. In working with all of these other companies in a way that you probably have not in the past, what were some of the lessons learned during those collaborations? And I'm curious, because you do have such strong business and people-oriented philosophies, with these new collaborations, have you kind of had new aha moments or lessons learned that something you've identified that you would want to incorporate into your philosophies moving forward? Of the lessons learned, um, and these aren't my philosophies, I, I just say, you know, who owns gravity? We don't know who owns it, but it's kind of fun to ski with, right? <laughs> so what we learned, honestly, is the principles that Toyota codified are way more true than I thought, and they're way more applicable. So the shock to me was I thought we were decent at it, and I would, I, I would say that I'm so embarrassed at how bad we were at it. And so the level of conviction I have, have with at least the principles that we document and that we say are true are 10 times magnified, meaning... Let's say you have a business, you say, Jeff, just tell me what to do. I'm just willing to accept what, what you have. I'd be able to list these things out and say, just don't violate these and you'll be okay. And trust me, you're violating right now. Let's walk to it. So I'd say that the surprise is, is really that those principles were more valuable than I ever imagined. And I'm embarrassed and actually ashamed that it took me until I was 53 years old to learn this. And then I'll also then say, thank you from above. I get to learn it today before I die. So I'll be thankful. But I'm, I'm actually really pissed at myself for. Not, not having strong enough commitment. I think we also learned on, a, on the other side of it is we need to be better as a supplier of information. It's really important to have partners who have systems and a consistency. So like literally, if I were to lay out five different masks and, and you know nothing about us, right? So you've never really, we, we are not friends yet or whatever. We just have met through this process. I guarantee you, you would be able to walk over and say that one was sewed by Koss or Nordstrom and this was sewn by somebody else. Am I right? And I guarantee you, you'd be right. So we've learned that there really is something that we do that's very special here. And also we saw that with Nordstrom is the level of detail, the level of quality is there. And we didn't need a lot of data to, to support it. We also found as those who kind of aren't so used to doing high quality work, we needed to have better data and processes to manage them. 
any other surprises part is just the blessings that have come from people that that's been shocking to me to the point of like tears when I go home of gratefulness or like, I can't believe that I get to experience this. And that's, that's a lesson learned is I wish I would have been a more loving neighbor. I wish I would have been more giving earlier in my life. I'm now looking at going, Oh wow. Maybe that's why like the love comes back in ways you can't imagine. Does that make sense? Like there's a regret that I have that I've learned through this, which is these things were true along, along the way. Had I been more consistent and just trusting that loving your neighbor is is actually super important, maybe more important than making profit today, instead of uh, being a good sheep following the shepherd, I kind of argued with them most of my life. And that's that, that I'm learning that the hard way. Yeah, that does make total sense. So once you converted uh, your factories, you started making masks, you brought in partners to help collaborate. How did the Million Mask Challenge go? I, I, I think it's still ongoing, and I'm sure it's difficult to track maybe how many masks have been produced or generated just through your efforts. But do you have any sense of kind of the impact you've made in this million mask challenge, which was the impetus for the pivot? Well, we certainly don't have data to know what impact we had. So I can, I can tell you that. I think the impact that Providence had by going out and saying, hey, we know we need at least 100 million masks and we're going to put that to challenge the world. So I think that we were part of the story that helped people get aware that this this really is a big deal and we need to do something about it. And I, I'm really thankful to see that the science is showing that you can kind of live an almost normal life if you're willing to wear a mask. So to be part of something that wasn't fool's gold is actually you know kind of cool. Um, my sense though is uh, in March when they uh, issued that, there were big government type meetings going on about the Government Production Act and that kind of stuff. We called in on those and what we heard on those phone calls was was really interesting to us for one, because we don't know how that system works. But what we heard were big companies saying, well, just give us a million dollars and we'll, we'll buy some machines. And in six weeks, we can produce a bunch. And my team's like, in six weeks, our friends might be dead. So screw that. Let's just make, let's make stuff now. And let's call all of our friends. So my sense now is the, the mask business is, I don't think there's a shortage anymore. Now that might not be true. That's not based on any data, but when I can go to Costco, the local drugstore and whatever and see disposable masks. And also like all the fashion people are making them now. So uh, my sense is that, that society is probably okay, meaning there's probably enough masks for everybody. If there's a partner that wants to do that with us, of course, we'll make, make to order, but we're not going to be making any and hoping that, that people buy them. Uh, we do think there's still an opportunity for shields. Shields are a little bit more technical because the, the cutting of the material isn't very fun and the assembly and protection of that material. So we, we do think there's a little bit of life left in that. And I would prefer to wear that than a mask. So I'm hoping that there's data soon because I think there'll be an essential element when the kids go back to school, hopefully soon, they're going to probably be better served by a shield that they can see through and that their teachers can see them through and sanitize every day than just a mask alone. I would say there is a need right now, I think on an ongoing basis, that the system itself, the leaders in those systems need to have a plan for this in the future. So they should have a stockpile, but they should have a contractual relationship set up with people like us where we have raw materials and designs approved sitting on the shelf and that every year they just pay us a storage fee or something. Because when another pandemic happens, which it probably will, you know, we, we could have uh, been in production quite a bit earlier. You made an interesting comment about thinking that people may switch to face shields as opposed to face masks 
I can certainly see that. I think people's facial expressions are important. I think when people are wearing masks and you can't see from nose down, whether they're smiling, frowning, whatever, you know, like we talk a lot about people's loneliness or lack of communication during this era. But even when people get together and they're talking, when you can't see people's facial expressions, it still kind of hinders that connection. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's exactly, I know that we're all paying attention to the things that is easy to understand, which is, oh, somebody caught COVID. Oh no, somebody passed away. We aren't paying attention to depression, you know, suicide rates, uh, loneliness in general. Uh, what are the impacts of kiddos of being, you know, at home and being kind of in the way of people trying to do their job, you know, as, as crappy as that sounds. So, and I have grandkids, so I want to see their faces. I want them to see me smiling. I, I don't want my granddaughters to be afraid of me. And when, they, when I wear a mask, it's a little scary, you know? So uh, I do, I, th- I agree that there's uh, something lost in the human experience that is important. So I'm just looking, I'm looking forward to a day where there is some data that says that that is an adequate, and there may already be data that I just haven't found yet, but right now I'd like to see the state come out or the feds come out and say, you can use this cover or you can use a shield. Both are acceptable, but especially for kids, I very much want my, my grandkids and, and their friends to be able to see their teacher smiling at them. How do you foresee yourself playing a, a role in the evolution of this new normal, as well as uh, your company? You've already mentioned the continued focus on face masks, but what else do you see evolving as the new normal comes upon us? So uh, I think the new normal for us is really, we won't even really call it a new normal. We'll, we'll just say that what I think in the next, let's say, five to 10 years is I think that the what we consider to be the crisis so far is not really the crisis. The real crisis is when the economic structure that we all rely on is tested uh, and maybe beyond its means. So my hope is that we can look back and say, oh, August of 2020, that was the, that was the peak of the crisis. I hope that's the case. In my view, the, the new normal for the business that I, I currently own is we're going to stick to the principles. We need to find new customers, and that's not something that's easy to do, or we need to add some revenue. But we're going to still start with the who and the why. Like, who, who are we doing business with, and are we really a good fit? I've had this conversation with my wife and, and even my father to say, our business has been very successful for 45 years. If it ends on the 46th year, that doesn't make us failures. So if the company exists, it will be because we found uh, organizations who dig what, we, who, what we're all about and want products that we can make. And I am kind of hopeful that people will choose to buy stuff made in the USA and made to a certain standard. But uh, normally that means it's going to cost more. So I hope. Uh, so a specific example of that is we, we love for our friends at Nordstrom to sell some of our furniture for us. We're going to ask them to do that. And maybe they'll say yes, maybe they'll say no. If they say yes, it'll be super fun. There's uh, other furniture opportunities for us. But if the economy kind of uh, trucks along in the slow mode for a while, uh, we'll have to be a smaller company in order to exist. Um, I think my own journey, like what I think in the future is, I'm to the point in my my life where I count each day as, a, wow, I get to live another day. And so... I want to finish well, finish well in my marriage, finish well as a dad and, a, and as a, a grandfather, I guess, if you will. But I really want to finish strong as a business person. How do you see that evolving as we get into the new normal? If my company exists in five years, I want the story to be 
if you come to work for us, we're going to be all about you, equipping you to become the best version of you possible. But more importantly, I think it's because of this desire to grow people, we want to be known, at least to some families, as the people that helped you or that person grow and get a leap forward. So I hope that my my story going forward is that I finish strong. I finish strong on the things that I've already mentioned, but the, the next generation will be able to not even know my name, but have the learning that I might be able to provide to them and impact them. And, and not just as business people, but first as spouses or partners, whatever the world calls those today, as parents, as friends. I don't want to be 73 and not having spent the next 20 years of my life helping that next generation. Since you brought up family and next generations, I'm curious, have any of your children thought about taking over for you? I mean, do you think you'll reach that point where your dad did, where you kind of have those self-defined goals that once you attain, you'll be ready to retire and pass it on to one of your children? So when I say next generation, it's not blood family, but family through Christian brotherhood, if you will. So, But I also do have some kids. I have four kids. My 15-year-old is downstairs, and he just made a robot that can write cursive for him. Very cool. And he made it from scratch, and, and now he's figured out, oh, now I can use that for homework if I have to <laughs> handwrite something. So I just got that video, which is crazy cool. All four of my kids, they are better at shining light than I am. I'm not sure that they'll want to work here. So there's a generation of younger people here who I love as if they're my own kids who can run this company. And whether or not that means they own it or not is a totally different question. We absolutely want to be closely held, meaning we want it to be, we don't want ownership to be a reason for the mission to be steered off track. So the last thing we need is an owner who looks at this as a way to print money. We, we need an owner who says, I'm investing what I believe through my money in growing people. And I expect that as an owner of a company that does that really well, that I will get a return that, that is good. So we're trying to make the business so that it doesn't need me to run. But yeah, I don't have a desire to retire. I don't see that anywhere. But I, I want to enjoy life throughout life. So tomorrow I'll hop on a boat and go north as far as the, the government will let me. So it's not that I work all the time. It's not something I aspire to do. I don't I don't have this idea of retiring and, and ending. Whatever it is, it'll be something more important, either a crisis that my family has or some other opportunity that allows me to impact the world on a greater platform. It won't be because I want to, I don't know, move to Arizona. Can't imagine. It'd be awful. No offense to my friends in Arizona. I have a couple, but yeah, it just does not sound fun. Yeah. Well, those are very uh, aspirational goals and, and it's a great outlook. I'm right there with you. I, I couldn't imagine myself retiring in the traditional sense, you know, like sitting on the recliner for the last 20 years of my life watching TV. I mean, this sort of work that I'm doing now, I, I guess I'm, I'm extremely lucky in doing this and having this conversation with you. And if this is like what retirement is, I would be in heaven doing this sort of storytelling and this sort of work. And by the way, I have to say, I'm extremely impressed. Your son building the robot that writes in cursive I can uh, think of a couple times back in grade school, I wish one of those things had been around uh, to uh, forge uh, parent signatures on permission slips or uh, yes. report cards. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant. Jeff, if leaders of an organization find that the principles and philosophies are of interest to them or align to kind of their own, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and learn more from you? So I think there's a couple of areas where I think I'd be useful to society. And one of those areas is 
if you're a leader of an organization and you're curious as to whether the principles in the Toyota production system or lean manufacturing or Kaizen, do they apply to my work? I, I want to say it absolutely positively does apply. And if you're interested in having a person who be, I'll spend as many hours as they want to on the phone, helping them understand how that applies to them. So the best way would be don't delay, text me or call me or, or email me. So uh, email me at Jeff Koss. Uh, so it's J-E-F-F-K-A-A-S at me.com or just text me 425-238-2775. We can FaceTime. Don't delay. I would just say, and if you disagree with them, even that, that'll be a fun conversation. So if anything I've said today where you're like, gosh, I wish I could ask a question. It's a lot of fun for me to have those questions. You know, you've been given responsibility of leadership and I've never met a leader who doesn't want to do well. So I've had a lot of people in my life that have just come alongside me and shepherded me and helped me in ways where there's no money exchange. But this calling of leadership is an important calling and our society needs good leaders. And if I can help them in any way, just, yeah, don't delay, call. Oh, sorry. I was in the middle of texting you. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> That's so great. After having this conversation with you, now that I, I know you a little bit better, what do you think would be useful for society? Yeah, I, I think that the part of society that is misunderstood, it's the role, I think, of small business and the impacts that, that small businesses can have on communities. And a lot of times these small businesses don't have the resources that the big businesses do. So I think from an impact to society is, you know, we rely on Microsoft for a lot of what we do to build our business. And uh, this podcast that you have is a way of helping other people understand that there are you know, some positive things going on in the world. So in terms of benefiting society, it just I think that it's available to be a helping hand and a willingness to try to do that. So if any of your listeners are just like, hey, I have a question I'd like to have answered, I'm always willing to try to help them with what I know. And I don't know a lot, so it won't take all that long. <laughs> and then obviously, if you know somebody who needs a a really nice sofa. Have them go to our website. <laughs> okay. So this has really been an interesting conversation because I remember initially when we found you, before we reached out, we thought, well, here's a, a furniture factory that kind of pivoted their factory a little bit to help make masks. But we've really uncovered a lot of deeper thinking, not just in business, but on a personal level, in a community sense, working with others on a collaborative level. So it strikes me that while it is important for people to pivot, to think of ways that they can help out, especially in a, in a time like this, the other significant portion of this is how easily you were able to make that change, make that pivot. And it was because of your business philosophies and the practices that you had already kind of installed in your process and in your system and thinking about some of the other guests that I've also interviewed, what has struck me as very impressive is how quickly all of them were able to just come together and make something happen. You know, two college kids, instead of going on spring break, decided to brainstorm a little bit. And a few weeks later, you know, they invented something that had gone global. What advice do you have to not just businesses out there, but individuals? So I have a lot of friends, a lot of people who you know, in the fight, flight, or freeze, they've been a little bit frozen. And my encouragement to anybody in a situation is, is we're in this together. Don't be alone and use the resources that you have to connect with other people. I think I have a propensity for taking action. So I think all of us have these promptings throughout the day, which might be, 
gosh, I should check in with that person or, hey, I should you know check on my neighbor. So if the moment that you're in allows you to go on more walks or to connect or be creative, I would absolutely just say, get out and do what you can to connect to things that the busy life prevented us from doing. This is really going to be a time where some people will look back at this as, as the sweetest thing that ever happened in spite of loss, in spite of horrible things happening to people in our community, because they took the time to actually reconnect with people that they love. And I would just say that as much as we are a little bit victims of this thing that's happened, generations before us had to do with this and world wars and other things like famine. This is the human experience. So I think it's actually kind of a good thing that we all know that, you know, we, we need to be thankful for every day. And so don't waste a day. It'd probably be the, the deal. And if you need ideas, give me a call. Yeah, I'd also say for sure, connect. There's a lot of people who are really hurting. And if you're alone right now, there's a good chance that one of your friends is alone right now. And admitting that to them and, and being in community, even virtually, will be an important step. That's great advice. Connection is extremely important during this time. And speaking of connection, I really appreciate you connecting with us and having this conversation. It's been such a valuable conversation. And I know that your goal of helping people grow is a huge focus for you. I can personally attest that you have helped me grow today. And uh, I'm hoping that our listeners also have grown or you've given them ideas of how to move forward. So you've definitely succeeded today. And I appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you. Same here. Thank you so much. It's important during these uncertain times that we do what we can to help light the path through the darkness. I'm your host, Bruce Bracken, for Luminaries in the Dark. Stay safe, stay healthy.